Welcome everyone to another episode of the SBE podcast, the place where we share interesting stories of interesting people. My name is Louis Morgner and today I'm joined by Robert Schurmund, who is an assistant professor at the Department for Marketing and Supply Chain Management. And most students probably know him from one of the many courses he teaches, among which are the course Fundamentals of Supply Chain Management. His main focus in his research is all about innovation in buyer-supplier relationships and supply networks. Today, we will talk about how to build the next electric car, take a small deep dive into Tesla and what Tesla does different than other car manufacturers, and end up our conversation with the topic of what the future for supply chain management looks like. So, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited for the conversation and welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for firstly organizing this. I think it's amazing that you, um, uh, that you try to reach a new audience with the community that we have at SBE. Uh, and I'm very happy to be here to share a little bit of this story that you were uh, introducing so kindly already. Awesome. So maybe before we get into the actual topics and content all about supply chain management, can you tell us yeah. a little bit how you got into supply chain management? Yeah, it's a little bit of a funny story, actually. Um, I have done my bachelor and master studies in Rotterdam Erasmus School, um, or Rotterdam School of Management, Erasmus University. Um, and uh, uh, I, I first did another bachelor, I started another bachelor in management in healthcare, more or less. Gezondheidswetenschappen uh, in Dutch, for those that are uh, listening. Um, but I didn't like it, I didn't pass, I only had 44 credits after uh, a year and a half or so. I mean, these were the old days, you could get away with these kind of things. Um, and so I, I stopped that and then I was looking for something else and I started a bachelor in, in business administration. But then I thought, okay, I really need to just do this in one go in a nominal uh, trajectory and not delay anymore because I've already done this one and a half years so it's just gone to waste basically. Um, and so I, I passed through all my courses, and all of them were, were uh, I passed all of them. They were not great uh, grades, but I passed them. Uh, until in the final um, uh, block of the third year of my bachelor, I had one course that I did not pass in the first uh, instance, and I had to take a reset for supply chain management. And then I decided, okay, wait a minute. I, I actually, there's something interesting here. It's difficult. It's more difficult than just passing a typically multiple choice tests um, that you can get away with with studying for like a day or two. Um, I really had to put some time and effort in and that was actually sort of a trigger. I was interested in anyway, but it was a trigger to actually pursue this as uh, my master's degree as well. Um, so that was kind of how I, how I first started in, in supply chain management with my master's. And then I uh, ended up also doing a PhD in, let's say, a subfield of supply chain management, purchasing and supply management, uh, and innovation in buyer-supplier relationships. And that is really today, uh, let's say, my core uh, research area where I focus on. How did you actually end up in Maastricht then? I mean, you started in yeah. Rotterdam. Uh, how was the transition? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, uh, uh, I, I studied in Rotterdam and then lived there for about 10 years in total. Um, but the thing is, if you do a PhD in Rotterdam, and I think this is common in other places as well, um, they already let you know from the start that they will not hire you for a next position. Um, so I knew that when I started, I would have to go somewhere else for my true academic uh, first job. Um, and then at some point, um, I was 
asked to come here and present in a, what we call a job talk, meaning you go somewhere, you, have, you present a seminar about your research, and you have a lot of talks with colleagues in the department. Uh, and at the end of the day, I was offered uh, a position here. I was still doubting whether or not I actually wanted to go abroad, um, but the alternative would have been to go to the UK. And that was about two, two and a half years ago, and it was not very attractive at that point to move there and uh, uh, have a little bit of stability uh, also in, in my and our family life. Um, and that was one of the core reasons beyond the great opportunity that lies here um, to actually go to Maastricht. Yeah, awesome. and I ended up here. Yeah, and that's great because now we can have a nice chat exactly. about the different topics. And it's, uh, also, I've been a student of your courses before. And for me, uh, I think for most bachelor students, that's actually the first touch point they have with the world of supply chain management. And I think if you hear the term for the first time, you don't imagine that many things behind it. But if you take a deeper look, it's quite interesting how you see these different elements in the different areas of business. So really a fundamental yeah. course and concept uh, for any business student uh, nowadays. So how about we just jump right into the question? So. Sure how to build the next electric car? I mean, big question, where do we start? It's a very big question. I think we have to look uh, at uh, kind of dissecting a little bit of what has happened in this, uh, in this market. Um, and, and that takes us back actually a couple of 100, 150 years ago when there, electric cars were very common. Um, we just kind of lost that knowledge and that way of building cars from let's say the 1920s until 1999 when uh, the first hybrid car, uh, the Toyota Prius, was, was introduced. Uh, and so there was already a lot of knowledge on how to do this. The problem was the price and the quality of the batteries. Uh, to really get them at the scale and capability to drive a car at higher speeds for longer ranges, uh, that was kind of problematic in that area, until they developed the lithium battery or lithium-based batteries. Um, and that was kind of the starting point then for all the next developments that we've seen since uh, 2000, more or less. Um, and so this, I think this is an important question. And uh, most people that own a car are now considering when should I buy an electric car? Um, it, should I do it now? Should I buy a new one or a secondhand one? Uh, in the leasing market, which is a big thing in the Netherlands, electric cars are already quite common uh, because there's a great number of benefits, tax benefits associated with, uh, with leasing these cars. Um, but for the, let's say, the regular private owners of cars, it's not so common yet to, to um, buy an electric car anyway. And so the question is, which one kind of should you buy, right? And then we have to look at different manufacturers that, that are currently there. Um, and you already introduced that. Uh, Tesla is a very interesting uh, case. Um, now, the way you develop an, uh, any car, but especially an electric car, is you have to do things a little bit different than you're used to. Because you have, let's say you have already developed a number of uh, internal combustion engine cars, um, then it's easy to build the next one. In the sense of you have all the knowledge about what the car should look like, what goes into that car in terms of components, you just need to fit them together, basically. And maybe you do a little bit of new, uh, body work, you develop a few new components, you put in a new set of tires and you develop a new fancy dashboard, and that's about it. So it's kind of uh, what we might call an incremental innovation. It's not truly new, there's nothing new about doing this kind of thing. Um, now, if you want to build an electric car and you've never done that before, and that was the case, I think, 10 years ago for most uh, car manufacturers, 
Um, then the situation is quite different because you have to develop something where you have no knowledge and not only you don't have that knowledge, but also your suppliers don't have that knowledge. Um, and so what we see happening is that there's two different paths that these companies seem to take. Um, so we have this famous, uh, it once was a startup, now we shouldn't call it uh, like that anymore, I think, but Tesla, which is an interesting example. Um, Tesla took a very different approach to developing cars than most car manufacturers in the world today. Um, Tesla is almost completely vertically integrated. And what that means is they uh, produce most of the things that go into a Tesla car themselves. Uh, the kind of only exception to that is the, uh, the batteries. Uh, but they have a kind of joint venture with Panasonic in their gigafactories even uh, sort of included on site to produce these, uh, these batteries, which are huge things for, uh, uh, for these cars. Uh, but all the rest of the stuff is self-designed, self-developed, self-produced, and self-assembled by Tesla in these big factories that we uh, uh, see emerging or popping up in different places of the world nowadays. Um, and so um, what other car manufacturers do is they have this complete strategy of outsourcing most of the production of any car. Um, about 80% of the revenues of a car can be traced back to invoices from suppliers, which means that they really only produce 20% of the value of that car, produce or assemble, right? Most of these car manufacturers put all the parts that they get from different suppliers together in their own factories, and they have some connections to downstream uh, dealers that sell these cars. Um, but with Tesla, they actually sell the cars themselves as well. So in their own showrooms or online, uh, they actually have their own sales channels as well. And that is what we call kind of complete vertical integration across the entire uh, supply chain. Um, and there are reasons to suggest that this would be a good approach for developing this type of more radical innovation, because you really need to start from scratch, or at least that's what Tesla did. They started from scratch, building up a new car that was truly focused on this electric um, component, truly focused on the battery and an electric engine. Um, so that was definitely something that is, that is clearly different. And so when you look at the structure of the supply chains of these two types of companies, Tesla, or Volkswagen, uh, I think you can see a clear difference between how much they outsource to suppliers as well as to distributors, um, and how much internal capabilities they have for developing and also producing these types of cars. Um, that's not to say it has been easy for Tesla to produce a lot of cars, though, um, because they, they've had trouble scaling up their capabilities, scaling up their production volume, uh, to the point where I think this year they will probably sell about 600,000 cars. Now, most major car manufacturers sell in the neighborhood of 8 to 12 million cars a year. So there's still a big difference in terms of uh, selling these cars. Um, now, electric cars, Tesla is still a front runner. Um, maybe Volkswagen will sell more electric cars this year. Maybe not. We don't know. But they're in the, roughly the same neighborhood in terms of volume of production. As you pointed out, I think that's a huge difference and towards uh, uh, to traditional car makers, and there's some advantages to it. But now I wonder why didn't traditional car makers uh, approach the supply chain uh, the same way? Why are they doing it differently? Yeah, 
So I think they were a little bit stuck in their own ways. Um, so in that sense, Tesla disrupted not just the market by introducing their own car, but also by creating a demand in the market for these types of cars. And that triggered then other car manufacturers to pursue uh, the same trajectory to also build uh, the next electric car. Um, but going back to your question, I think what they, uh, what they decided to do differently, and this is a strategy, is to go at it alone rather than rely on, on uh, other manufacturers. So they did, build, uh, they did buy a few smaller factories where they could start building things, a few um, uh, joint ventures with others to kind of build up uh, some capabilities in, the, in, in these areas, especially the battery. Um, but for the most part, they hired people from these big car manufacturers into their own um, supply chain, into their own functions. Um, and so that way, they kind of hired the capabilities from outside into their own organization. Um, Tesla, of course, didn't exist as a car manufacturer before they started building this electric car. And that's a clear difference with Toyota, Volkswagen, the big uh, car manufacturers. Um, so they had a little bit of the ability to rely on their supply chain, but that supply chain was focused on developing internal combustion engines, diesel or, or gasoline. Um, and not electric cars. So still there was a need to get in touch with, at the least, um, knowledge and expertise on developing these batteries and electrical engines, which are different than the standard engines in cars today. There's one quote uh, from Elon Musk about how comparably easy it is to build a prototype electric car in relation to actually mass producing such a vehicle. And um, I think this goes quite nicely together with the relevance of supply chain management in general. Can you yeah. maybe share your thoughts on, on that? No, I totally, uh, I totally agree with him there. Uh, I think this is also what we've seen with Tesla. Um, they were quite early in the market of electric cars with a, with a very decent car, uh, uh, the best on the market, basically. Um, but they had a really, really hard time scaling that production up to volumes where they could serve the entire market. Now, they had an interesting, let's say, business model behind that, where they first targeted the really high-end customers with a more expensive car that would generate revenue that then they could use to develop the next sort of uh, medium-sized car, the Tesla 3, that they could sell to a wider uh, audience, to a wider market and, and public. Um, and so the way they went at it is, is really this kind of stepwise approach of doing one thing that leads to revenues that can build you the next capabilities, right? Um, I think what we see actually in, in some other car manufacturers is the opposite direction. So for example, Volkswagen is really pushing heavily on uh, electrification of uh, firstly the Volkswagen Golf uh, and afterwards now the ID3, um, the i3, ID3, I don't know, one of these, um, doesn't matter. Um, and, and so these are the smaller cars, right? Aimed at the lower end or medium ends of the market. Um, and so that's also a different strategy in where, who do you want to convince to buy an electric car? Um, so that's another interesting uh, development that, that we see in terms of where they focus their attention. So we could basically say that the way Tesla approached supply chain management can lead to a competitive advantage, uh, at least at this current state in time. Um, maybe thinking a little bit more yeah. about the competitive advantage of Tesla. One thing a lot of people talk about is the autonomous driving capabilities and also together with data collection, analytics, all those kind of things. Um, what is your take on, on that? 
No, I think it's important to recognize what exactly is the competitive advantage of Tesla. Uh, and for that, maybe you first have to look at what the market values uh, in terms of um, uh, future expectations of what Tesla and other car manufacturers are, are able to do. Now, I think just last year, the market value of Volkswagen and Tesla were more or less the same, about 75 uh, billion uh, euros or dollars. Um, but now they've kind of shifted apart. So Volkswagen actually went down a little bit uh, from 90 or, or 100 to 75 billion or so. And Tesla scaled up to a roughing 570 billion dollars or something like that at this, uh, at this point yesterday. Um, so what we see is that apparently um, uh, stock market analysts and investors value the capabilities that Tesla has beyond their actual volume of production, because they still don't sell that many cars, to be honest. 600,000, uh, they're not in the list of top 25 uh, car manufacturers in the world, not, not by a long shot. Um, so they don't, it's not about their production, apparently. It's about the expectations that Tesla will be able to deliver to the market. And that revolves in read around these kind of analytical capabilities that they have that enable them to collect a lot of data from drivers and then translate that also into uh, capabilities that they have, such as autonomous driving and all kinds of assistance systems as well, that are at this stage uh, uh, far more advanced than most other uh, car manufacturers. So I think that's where you definitely see uh, a, big, a big difference in terms of using these analytical capabilities as the defining characteristic of their uh, competitive advantage. Do you think their competitors have a chance to catch up in terms of data collection and uh, autonomous driving, therefore? Yeah, yeah, this is a really good point. It's hard to answer at this point because we don't know how these things uh, um, go. If you would have asked me a year ago, I was actually thinking that Tesla would have probably been bought by now by one of the bigger car manufacturers precisely for these types of capabilities. Um, and also now for the gigafactories that are functioning quite well, also in terms of... Um, having what they call, or what Elon Musk calls, machines that build machines. So it's a completely automated factory. Now, that's not entirely true, but that's the idea anyway. Um, that, of course, any car manufacturer could benefit from, because these are just robots um, that can build any type of car. It doesn't really matter, as long as you program them correctly. Um, so a year ago, I would have probably said that, no, I don't think Tesla stands a chance in the market. I think they should be. It, it's better if they are taken over by a manufacturer with better production capabilities of really scaling this up. I think this year we've seen a little bit of a difference where Tesla has been able to increase their production somewhat. Um, and they have, at least that's what the stock market shows, they have been able to persuade investors that what they are doing in terms of these uh, analytical capabilities is really different from, from the market. Um, so whether or not other car manufacturers are able to um, similarly build very good electric cars, then yes, right? If, if I, I, I'm actually sometimes looking at these electric cars and thinking, what should I buy? Um, and I'm actually looking at secondhand vehicles then. Um, but I would probably not buy a Tesla because it's still very, very pricey uh, compared to some of the others in the market. Um, but Volkswagen, uh, Volvo will come up with a lot of electric uh, uh, models in the, in the near future as well. Um, they have, by now, I would say, the abilities to kind of build a very decent electric cars for a lower cost. So in terms of the market share, I don't think Tesla will ever reach a, a kind of uh, market share that, that is large in comparison to these big manufacturers. 
but they might be able to leverage these capabilities that they have to design a beautiful electric car, but also make it in a way that you want to drive it, right? Everybody wants to drive an electric car. Anyway, I, I would want to drive a Tesla. Um, more than another uh, electric car, right? So I think that's a big difference today. Um, and yeah, we'll have to see and wait a little bit whether these other car manufacturers will get as good as things like autonomous driving and assistance uh, as Tesla is at this point. You mentioned in the end, uh, I mean, for you personally, you're thinking about buying an electric car. It comes down to consumers and what you get for your value. Yeah. So I think the main determinant for who's going to succeed in the future is also who can build the best product for the cheapest price point uh, in the end, because that's uh, what determines the success largely. One crazy idea Tesla or maybe Elon Musk has is the vision of the robo-taxi fleet, where you can add your Tesla to the fleet to make it more affordable, because yeah. you can make money with your own Tesla. What do you think are the implications for this big and broad vision? No, I think, that, I think this is interesting. I think what we will actually see in the near future is a lot of electrification of uh, uh, business cars, where because the price point is just higher on average, but also all the vans of deliveries, uh, uh, delivery mans that drive into your street every day, uh, especially also that in, given the fact that big cities suffer from a lot of pollution, uh, they will really push for electrification of of that kind of fleet of, uh, of cars and, and vehicles. And actually there I see a bigger potential than in uh, uh, maybe regular private owned electric cars for the near future. Um, taxis is another interesting example. I mean, if you don't need a driver, if that would be allowed at some point, then of course it makes it far cheaper to use a car and to actually use a taxi uh, in the street. So I think in big cities, big urban areas, uh, in the Netherlands probably that's only Amsterdam and Rotterdam, uh, but other big cities, Paris, New York, London, these kind of things, I think there we will find in the near future uh, these things, except that regulation doesn't really allow for these kind of things yet. So we do see that in uh, uh, China and Singapore, they're already introducing robo-helicopters, uh, that kind of function as a vehicle that drives on the road versus something that can fly. Um, so probably we will see more interesting developments in that area or in that region of the world than in, um, in our case where we don't really allow for these kind of experiments to take place in the public sphere. Let's try to combine all the different things and information you shared with us about Tesla and the current state of uh, competing with other car manufacturers. What would you advise a traditional car manufacturer to do in order to compete in the future? That's a very good question. Uh, I'm not in the business of, of consulting companies normally, right? So it's a, it's a triggering question. But I will say one thing, um, and that translates back to the research that I've been doing on um, supplier involvement in new product development, which is one of the areas where uh, I've done a, a big literature review of you know, what actually works in that area and what doesn't work. And what we find is um, there's a lot of talk in the town about early supplier involvement, which means that companies should uh, talk in early stages with their suppliers about what they want, what cool ideas they have. Uh, a lot of companies are also organizing kind of supplier days and things like that. And we actually find that that doesn't really work in terms of the actual innovation outcomes or product development outcomes. They don't really lead to better cars in the market, if you will. Um, on the other end, what we can see is that extensive supplier involvement, which means that you delegate certain responsibilities for development to a supplier, to a knowledgeable supplier, 
Um, that really has big effects on the product development outcomes that we care about, financial performance in the market, for instance. Um, and so that would be the advice if you are a traditional car manufacturer and you are yet to develop or start developing an uh, electric car, then you would look for a supplier that has capabilities in this area of batteries and electrical engines, right? Because you cannot develop those kind of knowledge on your own unless you do it like Tesla does, but then you need a completely vertically integrated supply chain from scratch. And that's really hard to build up. Um, and so there's a lot of benefits from leveraging the complexity of the supply chain in terms of innovation outcomes. Um, more complexity means that you have more access to diverse ideas and better knowledge and capabilities, specializations in different areas, both upstream, so both towards suppliers, but also downstream, more different channels to sell your car, for instance, of course, end up usually um, triggering more demand as well. Um, so more complex chain typically leads to more innovation, but Tesla proves that there's also this other strategy available. I think this brings us to a really interesting next topic. Um, in our briefing call uh, for this podcast, we quickly talked about evidence-based management. And as you pointed out earlier, in the end, it comes down to your strategy, the strategy you pursue, and also kind of how management approaches those types of problems. So maybe uh, can you give us yeah. a quick insight into what evidence-based management actually is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we should look a little bit back at what happened in medicine to really understand the storyline here. Um, so in medicine, doctors need advice on which treatments to give certain patients. And uh, uh, so what pharmaceuticals work, what types of surgical interventions actually work and lead to better outcomes. And what they do in uh, medicine is they do big randomized controlled trials. So they run a study uh, randomly assigning people to uh, the treatment or another treatment or a placebo um, to see what works better, right? To see, uh, to look at the survival rates of these patients after five years, to look at side symptoms, uh, things like that. Basically what we see with the vaccine development at this point as well. Um, and so what you need is to then conclude on the basis of not just one of those studies, but a lot of the studies in different parts of the world conducted by different uh, university hospitals or different uh, uh, populations, different dosages of uh, pharmaceuticals, you need to kind of combine and see like, okay, does this actually work? Does it do what we predict it would do? And so you need to integrate the evidence. Uh, and that should lead to informed decision makers by doctors in the field, right? So not just a kind of scientific exercise as standalone, as an academic in the ivory tower, but really to inform practice. Now the question may come, is there such a thing as evidence-based management as well? In the sense of, do managers in the field rely on scientific evidence to inform their decision maker? Do they look at a study in Academy of Management Journal or uh, the Journal of Supply Chain Management, in my case, to see what the science tells them to do? And I don't think we see that at this point. Um, and so that's the little bit of the backbone of what the gap between science and practice that we observe in management. And it's not just me saying this, by the way. There are centers of expertise for evidence-based management and things like that. I'm not just making this up. This is a problem. And you see a lot of calls in the literature as well for kind of making sure that science connects with practice as well. And so what can we do about that? That's the next question then, right? How can we uh, make sure that managers know how to rely on evidence uh, to inform their decision maker? And I think that brings us back to the example I briefly talked about early supplier involvement. Uh, kind of that idea has taken a really a life of its own, 
Um, so it came from, I think, a right scientific notion that Japanese manufacturers did certain things different than their American counterparts. But then it took a life on its own in the sense that consultants and practitioner reports started using this phrase early in supplier involvement to tell uh, manufacturers what to do. They should involve suppliers early. That was kind of the, the uh, notion of things. Actually, that was not the difference between Japanese and American uh, companies if you look at the scientific evidence. There was this other dimension underlying this, this, this notion. And so the, uh, the kind of thing that we should do is to inform these kind of IDs or best practices that we sometimes see with actual evidence from science. I mean, do these things really work, right? And we sometimes do have a kind of fascination in science with only new things and only new ideas and introducing new concepts or new theories and things like that. I think we need to take a step back a little bit and also look at how reliable are the concepts and the theories that we are actually using in an everyday uh, situation. What are the companies using to base their decisions on? And can we improve that practice by enabling this idea of evidence-based management or evidence-based supply chain management also specifically? So you mentioned the disconnect basically to, I'm just trying to summarize, so the disconnect sure. between theory and the actions and decisions that are taken by managers all around the world. How would an organization now go about implementing this evidence-based management? So how can I improve as an organization uh, to make more informed decisions? Yeah, so it's actually interesting that we're, we're doing this in Maastricht because I do think that we have an edge over some other uh, organizations in terms of training our students to rely on a broader set of evidence and sources to uh, solve cases. That's what we do in a problem-based uh, learning situation, right? We give you a case and say, solve this, find your own information about what is the best way to tackle this decision, right? And that could be you need to use a formula to de uh, determine the optimal inventory quantity, for example, but it could also be that a certain type of strategy works better in this and this situation, or you should communicate with uh, your staff in this and this way because that uh, um, empowers them more, something like that, right? And so we, we have this idea that you go out as a student, but hopefully later on as a manager as well, to look for pieces of evidence that can inform your decisions. Now, today, I think we still base those decisions sometimes on textbooks that might be dated, um, and that might also be very formulaic in the sense of they, they really have this same core structure, whatever book you take, um, in, in solving these issues. And so they are not really good at tackling these uh, more scientific questions, per se. Um, and so one way to improve that is to make sure that managers have access to scientific literature, but then also to read it, right? So it's, I think it's problematic that most academic research is behind a paywall, which means that now, as a student, you have full access through the university library. But once you step one foot out of the door, if you graduate, you no longer have access to those same sources. So we should definitely push for open science, meaning open access publications in any case. That is, is a necessary condition for this kind of idea of evidence-based management. But I don't think it stops there. I think we need a lot more um, training and a, and a little bit of a different attitude in practice as well that make this connection between science and practice stronger, um, but that also has implications for how we as academics 
translate our findings to the field. Maybe we shouldn't stick just to these kind of ideas of uh, an academic publications of 45 pages or more. We should find a different format, perhaps, um, to present these results. Let's keep that thought in mind. Um, essentially, I want to take a step back now mm -hmm. and look at supply chain management more broadly and would ask you, what are the common mistakes you see companies make in the field of supply chain management? Yeah, I think there are some interesting lessons also uh, to be learned from uh, the recent corona crisis. That could be one example where we saw that companies behaved in different ways, in any case. Um, so a lot of companies were um, somewhat unexpectedly hit harder by lockdowns in Wuhan, in China, in the early days, um, than you would have expected if they would have followed the advice from supply chain management as, a, as an academic field. So for instance, uh, if you take a course in purchasing, anyone will tell you that you need to uh, do multiple sources. To prevent risk of relying on one source of uh, components, you have to take uh, uh, action so that you always have either backup supplier or you split the volume between two suppliers or something like that to kind of prevent the risk of earthquakes, uh, other natural disasters or a pandemic or um, a strike in a factory that could also um, affect uh, the production volume in such a factory, right? And we, we've seen that they've sort of not been able to do that, or they haven't done that, because they actually had to close factories throughout Germany and, and Europe generally, because they didn't have the components anymore from these regions in China that were locked down. And so that's one interesting um, thing where I think that they, they kind of miss interpret somehow or miss the advice of science that always tells them to do things in certain ways, and then they take a different decision, and probably for good reasons, right? Um, because it's more costly, because they think that the risk is not so high, and things like that, but it's hard to estimate the risks of these kind of uh, uh, natural disasters and things like that. Um, and so the advice that uh, uh, they get from science and that you get during your education might be different than what they are willing to implement in practice. And that's, I think, a gap we need to uh, somehow fill as well. Awesome. Let's jump onto the last segment of our chat today. One thing that personally interests me quite a bit as well, uh, all about the future of supply chain management and what we can expect. And let's start with one article, um, I think published by the Harvard Business Review, about the death of supply chain management. How do you look at this article or the yeah. topic uh, in a broader sense? Well, it's a bit risky, right? Because if this would be true, if supply chain management would really die out as a profession, and, and, and uh, then it means I'm also out of a job, right? If there's no longer a supply chain manager in the field, then I can no longer study them as well. Um, I think what the, I think it goes back to a kind of common misconception, which is that supply chain management is about managing transportation. It's about managing logistics from A to B, and you know doing that in the smartest, most efficient way. Um, and yes, of course, if you have autonomous driving, then uh, a truck driver might be out of a job. Um, if we have automated warehouses, then an order picker uh, might be out of a job. Um, but I think for supply chain management as a management ID, it will not die, of course not, because somebody needs to design these systems. Somebody needs to uh, make sure that the trucks drive on the road and uh, pick it up at the right place. So all the planning, scheduling, managing, controlling, coordinating, all these kind of aspects that we actually think are supply chain management, um, 
they will still be there, whatever the sort of technological disruptions in the future are. Um, and so I completely sort of disagree with this notion that supply chain management will die, and certainly not in, uh, I I as management or academic interest. Um, there's a lot still to be uh, learned about how actually to implement these types of technologies. So um, we've also now seen, for example, that the number one challenge to uh, vaccines is not the development, but it's actually going to be the distribution. And distribution is a core part of supply chain management. So how do we actually organize uh, a system that is able to deliver as many vaccines as possible to a broad audience or a broad public um, in a very short time? We don't know that from the medicine world. We know it from supply chain management. So it will not die. I'm pretty sure of that. But there will be developments that mean that lower-skilled jobs in particular are at risk of being disrupted by technologies. Um, and that is also something we need to take into account when we pursue these types of technologies, right? Can we uh, design a system, can we design a supply chain in a way where there's still a place for humans to labor in these kind of uh, uh, places? There's so many interesting implications uh, to that, but let's maybe stick to the technological disruptions you mentioned briefly. What are the biggest or the most relevant trends you see in terms of technological uh, disruption? I think there's uh, maybe two that we, uh, uh, that we can briefly discuss. The first one is obviously automation of all kinds of, uh, let's say, more menial jobs. Uh, so in warehouses, we already see a lot of robotics, a lot of automation, um, completely replacing the human by a robot. Um, so... Um, we also see, by the way, developments where they go side by side, so co-robotics, where a, a robot walks behind you as you are an order picker in a warehouse, and you pick up an item, and he takes it and puts it in a box or something like that. Uh, he carries the stuff for you, kind of taking away the rough edges of these types of uh, things, replacing that by robotics. That would be a good idea, right? Um, but the next step, of course, is, well, why don't we just replace that human entirely by robot if that can pick uh, something from a box, then we don't need it anymore. Um, so there's a lot of risk in warehouses. I already mentioned also uh, uh, truck drivers, things like that. Once we get to the point where uh, autonomous driving and automation is at the next step, maybe in five to ten years we can kind of reach that, then we need anyway probably fewer, relatively speaking, fewer truck drivers than we have now. Um, and the same in the warehouse. Um, so that's one, one sort of implication of automation in, in um, logistical processes. But still, uh, like I said, somebody needs to organize these robots to work in the warehouse. Somebody actually needs to buy them. Um, somebody needs to make sure that they are maintained and operated. So there need to be contracts and service level agreements in place. And all of these kind of things are also in the realm of supply chain management. So I don't think that sort of the jobs that you would be interested in if you uh, would actually study supply chain management after this and then graduate hopefully and then find a job. I don't think that level of the jobs will really um, uh, decrease in availability, but the nature of the jobs might somewhat change depending on these digital developments. Um, another thing that we see, especially in the area of contracting, 
uh, is a, a great need for increasing the transparency of the supply chain. So this dates back to where we saw that uh, for food security reasons, we need to have a full traceability of where your piece of meat that you buy in the supermarket exactly comes from, at which slaughterhouse it was slaughtered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that created the need for a lot of transparency of all the different steps in the supply chain. And a logical uh, disruption for that is uh, actually blockchain. Um, so you probably think blockchain is uh, bitcoins and things like that, and there's definitely that. But the biggest disruption for blockchain or biggest opportunity for blockchain will be probably in the realm of these smart contracts um, where you and I agree to sell each other something and you automatically pay me upon uh, good quality received of the product. Um, so all of these kind of things can be automated as long as we have a complete data structure in place. Um, and again, that is something that somebody needs to create and operate and manage so there will still be jobs. But um, the kind of physical document that we would have uh, a signed contract, uh, that could be replaced by its digital equivalent uh, in a smart contract on the blockchain. Um, we, we have already seen a couple of uh, implementations of that. So Tony Chocoloni, a kind of famous, uh, uh, even beyond fair trade chocolate brand, um, they have what is known as the Tony chain. Um, and anyone can opt into that system where they ensure the complete transparency of the chain. Uh, and they are working on blockchain applications for that as well. So that you know that, you know, the chocolate bar that you pick up in the supermarket is made of coca bones that were produced in this and this location at these and these GPS coordinates uh, at that place and then transported in a number of steps uh, to the factory of Tony's, for example. Amazing. I think there's so many interesting things to see in the future and also interesting to watch uh, how it will change in the next five or ten years even because technology is changing so many things at such a rapid pace. Are there some closing thoughts you would like to share with our audience uh, in regards to evidence-based management, supply chain management? Um, right. Yeah, what's your message to the audience? Well, I, I think, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in these times. And uh, people that graduate now, for example, might be very unsure about their uh, ability to get a job and things like that. I think we should not be so risk-averse in a way, right? We should not be so scared. Um, there will be jobs. If you are a highly trained graduate from SBE or, I mean, even another business school, um, then, of course, you will be able to find a job because there are plenty of opportunities, especially in this changing world. Um, so you should orient yourself to these kind of things that both that you like but also that are challenging in a way, right? Where you are able to do things. So I know you are uh, a kind of tech, uh, uh, techie or very tech enthusiast. Um, and if that is something you want to pursue, then there will be a place in a company where you can also use these types of skills um, and use them for the benefit of the world, right? So supply chain management is not just about efficiency, but it is also about creating value for the world, such as uh, we see with these uh, vaccine distributions, right? Um, so I think my key message would be to uh, pursue what you really like, but it is also challenging at the same time a little bit. And then use everything that you've learned from science once you go into practice. And kind of don't forget how you're taught to do certain things. Well, I think that's a great ending word for a lot of students as well. I think some nice advice along the way for everyone who was thinking about their career. And I think the core message for me is be positive about the future and excited for the trends that are about to come. 
So Robert, thank you so much for taking the time today. I think it was a really interesting conversation about supply chain management and helped us understand on a more deeper level what also technology does with supply chain management and uh, what the future holds for us. So thanks again and it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was it. That was awesome. it. Awesome. Good. <laughs>